What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. It's the middle of winter in Connecticut, 1976. The members of the Yale crew team are headed to the Housatonic River. We would take a bus from the undergraduate campus out to Derby, Connecticut. That's where the boathouse was. The river itself is no longer frozen, but air temperatures are still below freezing. It's stormy, it's winter in the wind. You get soaked pretty quickly. There's water splashing off of the oars onto your back. And not infrequently, our sweatshirts would be frozen when we came back in. Your hands would stick to the oar because they'd be frozen. Then, after hours of training in the wind and the rain and the snow, it's time for the Yale men's rowers to hit the showers. The women didn't get showers. They had to wait on an unheated bus while every last Yale member of the men's rowing team would shower, come out steaming pink, and the women were shivering. They were getting pneumonia. The women petitioned Yale for their own shower facilities for months. No help came. Finally, the women were like, all right, we've had enough of this. And so, one frigid evening, waiting there on that unheated bus, wet and shivering, the members of the 1976 Yale women's crew team hatched a plan. They decided to do something really bold. And the impact of what they did continues to be felt today. To peacefully protest their plight, Yaleys had to strip for their rights. Title nine hiding in plain sight. A message clear as day. Let us play, let us play. I'm Sean Braswell, and welcome to The Thread, a podcast where we unravel the stories behind some of the most important lives and events in history. This season, we began with a major event in sports history. Chapstein will take it. That goal of the 1999 Women's World Cup marked a pivotal moment. Brandy Chastain's penalty kick 
had the weight of women's soccer on it. If she scored it, there was going to be one story, and it was going to change soccer and change the way people thought about soccer. If she didn't, maybe that doesn't happen. But it did happen. And one of the reasons it happened for the 99ers were the efforts of the women who wore the USA jersey before them, starting with the very first women's national team. The 1985 team had literally nothing. I think we maybe went home with a T-shirt. That first team played under harsh conditions for little pay and even less recognition. But they were given something more valuable, a chance to play. That was because of Title IX, the law that bans sex discrimination in federally funded education programs. But a law like Title IX means nothing if it is not enforced. Which is why what the women of the Yale crew team decided to do that cold winter in 1976 still means so much. When you think back before Title IX, which is before 1972, you you have to imagine a world that's really hard to conceive of today. Karen Blumenthal is a journalist and author of Let Me Play, the story of Title IX, the law that changed the future of girls in America. Back then, uh, women were really second class. There were almost no organized sports for girls. You could play tennis, you could swim, maybe you could run track, but that was it, just the individual sports. For most of American history, sports was the exclusive preserve of men. Women were expected to be feminine and delicate and to avoid strenuous activity. It was often said that, quote, nice girls don't sweat. And when women and girls were allowed to take the playing field, it was not to play the same sports as men or in the same way. Today, Miss Undergraduate plays field hockey. She is an enthusiastic archer. And since the aim is always to combine strenuous exercise with grace and charm, she participates in the modern dance. The best way to think about that period is almost to imagine it as a treehouse, which says on the outside, no girls allowed. Susan Ware is a historian and author of Game, Set, Match, Billie Jean King and the Revolution in Women's Sports. Women and girls were just not encouraged or allowed to play sports that their brothers and fathers did. And somehow sports was portrayed as being entirely natural and important for boys, and it was seen as being unnatural and unladylike for girls and women. Still, generations of women and girls wanted to play sports. But what they didn't have were the kind of organized resources that were available to boys and men in our society. While schools paid for men's teams to travel and charter buses, women's teams held bake sales to pay for their trips. They shared uniforms. They practiced late at night because that was the only time that the gym or the pool or the field was available. Nobody thought it was odd that a school sports budget would be 99% devoted to men's sports and the girls would maybe get 1%. In 1971, the year before Title IX was passed, girls made up only 7% of high school athletes, and an even smaller fraction of women played college sports. That was about to change, big time. But as the women of the Yale crew team later found out, that change was not going to happen fast enough.
Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972 is only 37 words long, but the implications of those words are enormous. Author Karen Blumenthal. So Title IX, it seems really simple, right? You don't discriminate on the basis of sex in education, but it's really complicated. This is a time when girls and boys are given different career aspiration tests. This is a time when boys run the school projector and uh, are the safety crossing guards, and girls are not allowed to do that. This is a time when there are no organized sports for girls in many, many places. And efforts to level an uneven playing field could not happen overnight, especially when it came to actual playing fields. The reality was truly shocking. Schools were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases millions of dollars on sports for boys, and virtually nothing on sports for girls. And the idea of somehow making that equal was daunting. But the demand was there. Women wanted to play organized sports. So the law is signed in 1972. Girls are looking at this going, where's my chance? 73, 74, 75. Schools and universities were reluctant to implement Title IX. It was costly and difficult. And the federal government was not exactly holding their feet to the fire, especially when it came to women's sports. Powerful groups like the NCAA were worried that Title IX would harm college football and other men's sports. And so they spent a great deal of time and money trying to smother the young law in its cradle. Historian Susan Ware again. So you start to have people realizing it's out there. What you don't have is any guidelines from the federal government about how this law is supposed to be enforced, and you have no enforcement at all. Zero. It took three years for the government to draft the regulations necessary to implement the law. Now it was up to colleges like Yale to abide by them. Once upon a time, Yale University was known as a powerhouse on the gridiron. Since its first game in 1872, Yale has won more games than any college in the nation. You can't name them all. Yale has had 81 All-Americans. Yale's success in sports didn't stop at football, but it did stop with men. Yale was an all-male school until 1968. And the main reason Yale finally went co-ed was that it was afraid it would lose male applicants who preferred schools that had women. Yale's president put it this way to a group of alumni at the time. Our concern is not so much what Yale can do for women, but what can women do for Yale? The college's administrators found out in 1976 just what women could do to Yale. Susan Ware again. Yale had just gone coeducational maybe five years before, and women were being brought into a very male institution. These were growing pains in the early days, and painful ones at that. Mary Mazio is a documentary filmmaker and a former Olympic rower. She wrote and directed A Hero for Daisy, a film about the 1976 Yale women's crew team. This was a time in the 70s where you didn't see as many women running on the track, and you didn't see as many women in the weight room. This was a time when women were booed, they were jeered, the male athletes at Yale looked down on their female peers, sometimes quite literally. While members of the women's crew team lifted weights, some men would stand on a platform above the weight room, hooting and hollering and calling the women names. Yale itself did not treat them much better. Historian Susan Ware. They were finding that they were not getting anywhere near the resources that were being given to men's teams. 
The Yale men's crews had state-of-the-art boats. The women had old, worn-down wooden ones. The disparities did not stop there. We were at a boathouse where almost all of the boats belonged to the men, and the men had a locker room upstairs that they used. Kathy Pugh was a member of the 1976 women's crew team and today is a pediatrician in Seattle. So the women would come out and wait on the bus for 30 minutes while the men took a hot shower, and your sweatshirt is slowly thawing out in the bus, but there's not really heat in the bus. Then the shivering women would have to endure a 30-minute unheated drive back to the Yale campus. And oftentimes we would arrive just in time to get to the last open dining hall for dinner. Mary O'Connor was also a member of the 1976 crew team. Today, she's an orthopedic surgeon and works at the Yale School of Medicine. So there was no time for me to go back to my dorm and, and change out of my cold, wet, sweaty clothes and then go to dinner. And some of our teammates got sick. The women started to complain about the conditions. There had been some efforts to bring to the attention of the university leadership our, our plight. Nothing was happening. Filmmaker Mary Mazio. So the women were told, the wheels of change grind slowly here at Yale University. So after about a year of trying to pursue a diplomatic resolution to, hey, maybe the bus can stay longer so that we can shower after the men, well, then the men would be late for class. That's not acceptable, right? There were a whole series of obstacles thrown up at every juncture. And so the team's two leaders and best rowers decided something more needed to be done. When I was a freshman... Mary O'Connor. There were two senior women on the team. Chris Ernst was the captain and Ann Warner was a junior. And they had both been on the 1975 uh, national team for women's rowing and had competed at the world championships and won silver medals. And they were like goddesses to us. Kathy Pugh. They were very charismatic. They just offered a kind of world that I had never even imagined, where women, you know, liked to be strong, and they liked, they had wants and, and desires, and they fought for them, and they liked to win, and they liked having muscles, and it was just earth-shattering for me to meet these women. One day, while they waited on the cold bus for the men to shower, Chris Ernst and Ann Warner discussed what to do about it with their teammates. Title IX started to be mentioned uh, while we were sitting on the bus. When Ann and Chris were back from pneumonia and feeling angry and also feeling very scared that they might not be able to make the Olympic team if they um, were going to get sick again. Someone on the bus joked that they should throw Johnny Barnett, the director of women's athletics, into the river so she would know what it felt like. Other outlandish suggestions followed. So all of those, those ideas were hatched because we were all wet and shivering on this bus for 30 minutes while the men took showers after practice. Then another idea was raised, one that was also unconventional, even a bit outrageous. Chris and Ann, the two team captains, looked at each other. What they recall is that they kind of dared each other. Neither of them quite had the nerve until they just caught each other's eye and said, dare ya. And the two leaders and 17 of their teammates accepted the dare. Honestly, there we were at Yale. I mean, we're at Yale University. 
We are incredibly bright women. And if we were to say, it's okay for us to be treated this way, what kind of message would that be for us to send out into the universe? And the statement the Yale 19 made the following day changed everything in the Yale universe and beyond. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. On the afternoon of March 3rd, 1976, 19 members of the Yale women's crew team met in the locker room at the Payne-Whitney Gymnasium on the college's campus. The women were nervous. Team member Kathy Pugh. There were some athletes who chose not to participate. Two of them were afraid of losing their scholarships, and um, others just didn't feel like they wanted to be that out there and vocal. Most of us were just devoted to both Anne and Chris and would have done anything they came up with. Team member Mary O'Connor. It was pretty simple. And we met down in the locker room and we had a marker and we wrote Title IX in big letters on our bare chests and our bare backs. And then we put on our Yale women's crew sweats. And we had nothing on underneath. The 19 women marched past the workout tanks toward the office of Johnny Barnett, Yale's athletic director in charge of women's athletics. Kathy Pugh. We had a a Yale Daily camera person with us who promised us that um, he would just only take pictures from the back and from the waist up. We had a New York Times reporter ready with no camera. The women marched up the steps to Barnett's office behind team leaders Chris Ernst and Ann Warner. The Yale photographer climbed up on a desk while the New York Times reporter sat in a chair, his back to what was about to unfold. Mary O'Connor. Chris gave us the signal. And we stripped. We, we took off our sweats 
and we stood there naked with our Title IX message on our chests and our backs. That's right. 23 years before Brandi Chastain took off her jersey in exuberance at the Women's World Cup, the members of the Yale women's crew team took off everything in protest. Kathy Pugh. We were all absolutely terrified. It's super scary to walk in and, and be naked in an athletic director's office. With the stunned Barnett looking on, Chris Ernst read the statement that the women had composed. It was not your average grievance letter. It was a manifesto. These are the bodies Yale is exploiting. We have come here today to make clear how unprotected we are, to show graphically what we are being exposed to. These are normal human bodies. On a day like today, the rain freezes on our skin. Then we sit on a bus for half an hour as the ice melts into our sweats to meet the sweat that has soaked our clothes underneath. We sit for half an hour, chilled. Half a dozen of us are sick now. And in two days, we will begin training twice a day, subjecting ourselves to this twice every day. No effective action has been taken, and no matter what we hear, it doesn't make these bodies warmer or drier or less prone to sickness. We are, as you can see, desperate. We are not just healthy young things in blue and white uniforms who perform tasks of strength for Yale in the nice spring weather. We are not just statistics on your win column. We are human and being treated as less than such. Mary O'Connor again. So we did our demonstration, and, and it was very a very silent event. We put on our sweats. We went back downstairs to the locker room and changed into our workout clothes to get on the bus and go to the boathouse for practice. The imprint of their protest remained, especially on its intended target. One of my favorite pictures is, is you can see Chris Ernst's back with Title IX written on her back, and she's reading the statement, and the athletic director is looking down at the floor, arms folded, very closed body language, because, of course, this was a very negative moment for her. The following day, a brief article about the protest appeared in the New York Times. Filmmaker Mary Mazio again. And the story went around the world in a nanosecond. Yale women strip. And this becomes this huge story. Author Karen Blumenthal again. Yale alumni are appalled that women um, have been mistreated in this way, that they haven't been allowed to shower. Alumni wrote concern letters to campus administrators. Some enclosed checks to contribute to new facilities for the women. Newspaper cartoonists lampooned the college, drawing pictures of naked women inside Yale boats. The college was embarrassed. We needed to speak our truth, and and we wanted our voice to be heard. And fortunately, our voice was heard. Team member Mary O'Connor again. So the bottom line was that by the next spring, there was an addition onto the boathouse, and we had a locker room. I mean, like, it worked. It was... Honestly, amazing. It worked. The Yale women's crew team got their locker room and their showers, but they accomplished much more than that. Word of the Yale protest spread. It became a rallying cry for women on other campuses. Title IX was now more than an obscure law. It was a cause. And I can imagine that in other athletic departments, 
athletic directors all of a sudden said, oh my God, did you hear what those, those women at Yale did? And maybe they started to think, could that happen here? How are we treating our, our women's teams compared to our men's teams? Team member Kathy Pugh. Every time we would race another school, they would ask us about it. And they were all kind of ashamed because they had, in many respects, less for their women's crew than we had. Filmmaker Mary Mazio. When the women stood up and said, we are going to be counted, we are going to say something, we're going to speak what needs to be spoken, athletic directors across the country stood up and they said, whoa, 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 we don't want articles in the International Tribune or the New York Times. Like, this is what gender equity means? All right, let's take steps. In the end, Yale benefited hugely from the team's protest. Mary O'Connor. And we were a very successful team, producing national team rowers, Olympic rowers. We were collegiate champions. I mean, we were a powerhouse in women's rowing and created a legacy at Yale that has continued to this day. That legacy also extends past Yale's walls. Mary Mazio again. What they didn't realize was the impact that it would have on women today. If you look across the spectrum, what Title IX has done for women has been nothing short of extraordinary. If you look at the statistics of women in sport in 1976, when the women did this, and made this statement and protested in the fashion that they did, and you compare it to the number of athletes today, it is exponential. Since 1976, the number of women playing college sports has gone up by 340%, an impact the Yale crew team could not have imagined. Kathy Pugh. When I look back at myself doing that protest, I was just doing it out of that bond of friendship and for an adventure. And I did not appreciate the meaning of that at all. I really didn't. And yet it has come to affect my life. People ask me about it. And I have really come to appreciate how much that was needed. Mary O'Connor. It was a very personal moment, at least for me. It was a moment that also really created a deep bond with those of us that experienced this. And I remain extremely close to many of those women. Members of the Yale 19 went on to become Olympians, doctors, professors, lawyers. They include a Taekwondo world champion, the owner of a WNBA team, the head of an all-female plumbing company. Many have sons and daughters who are also rowers and who continue to benefit from their mother's bold statement. My youngest child, one of my daughters, Rose, she's a lightweight women's rower, an excellent rower at Boston University. Mary O'Connor again. She never told Rose about what she did in college. And then one day... And she was reading a story about Title IX and came across the demonstration at Yale. And she mentioned it to my husband. And my husband said, well, you know, your mother was there. And my daughter says, what are you talking about? He said, your mom. Your mom was part of that demonstration. So I came home, and she was like, Mom, I can't believe you never told me this story. And I said, well, honey, I guess I never really found it important to tell you that story. And she said, but of course it's important that you tell me the story. She actually gave me the perspective that sharing this story matters because she needed to hear what 
I had done, she knew that this demonstration made a difference for her. Mary O'Connor, Kathy Pugh, and the other members of the Yale 19 fought to uphold the promise of the law that was supposed to protect their rights. But that law, Title IX, could not have happened without the efforts of another woman. <laughs> my mother was my mother was a badass. Bernice Bunny Sandler wasn't always a badass. She was a mild-mannered Jewish wife and mother of two from Brooklyn. Then everything changed. Sandler earned a doctorate from the University of Maryland when she was 41 years old but she wasn't considered for any of the open teaching positions she applied for. She was told she came on, quote, too strong for a woman. Bunny Sandler went home and cried. Then she showed just how strong a woman she was. She had, I think, a sense of righteous outrage whenever something was just not just, when something wasn't fair. On the next episode of The Thread, the story of the badass women like Bunny Sandler, who went to remarkable lengths to get a law passed called Title IX. Let us play, let us play. Oh, let us play. Let us play. Let the us thread play. is produced by Robert Kulos, Shannon Williamson, and me, Sean Braswell. Evan Roberts engineered our show. This episode features the song Let Us Play, written and performed by Teacup Gin. You can hear more of their songs at teacupgin.com. To learn more about the thread, visit Aussie.com slash the thread. All one word. And make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts, follow us on iHeartRadio, or listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl, go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait, did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.